hopefully you spent some time in the book of Judges this week. And if so, can we agree that the book of Judges is filled with some strange, even offensive stories, some unsavory characters? If we were reading the Bible, starting at the beginning, tracing the history of the people through whom God intends to bring salvation to the world, I think when we got to Judges, we'd be quite sure something has gone wrong with that plan. But if we look closer, we see that God is working out His plan, helping His people to see their need for a Savior and King. Let's open our Bibles together to Judges to see what these saviors God sent to his people in the day of Judges have to show us about the greater savior God would one day send. The movies offer us larger than life heroes and we love them for it. Think Rocky, Superman, Atticus Finch, Han Solo. I mean, who doesn't want a hero to show up and save you when all seems lost? And music offers some thoughts on heroes too. In the words to that song, Holding Out for a Hero, remember that from Footloose? We were told exactly what a hero needs to be. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh from the fight. Then a few years later, in the 90s, two divas also sang about heroes, but they seemingly stopped looking out there somewhere for a hero and found one closer to home. Whitney Houston sang that everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. And what was her answer when she didn't find anyone to fulfill that need? So I learned to depend on me, she sang. Similarly, Mariah Carey sang about a hero who comes along with the strength to carry on. And who is this hero? Look inside you. A hero lies in you. Certainly, this is the message we are fed in our self-empowerment culture. Don't look for someone out there to save you. It's really up to you to save yourself. The book of Judges shows us what a world looks like in which people look inside themselves rather than outside of themselves for the hero they are searching for. And frankly, it's not a pretty picture. It is dark and distressing and frankly, sometimes disgusting. As the book of Judges unfolds, we witness abuse of power in the name of God, religious prostitution, assassination, gang rape, and dismemberment. The book of Judges is full of despicable people doing deplorable things. But in the middle of this darkness and distress, Judges also presents us with hope. Hope that a hero will come along. A hero who is fresh from the fight, a hero not from inside us, but from outside of us. Judges helps us to see not only that we really do need a hero, but exactly what we need our hero to save us from. First, we need a hero to save us from our incomplete obedience. 
When the book of Judges opens, the people of Israel are looking for a leader, a hero, who will lead them into battle to overcome the Canaanites who remain in the land. And the Lord appoints the tribe of Judah to take the lead, saying, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The report on their efforts in Judges 1 contains both good news of defeating and capturing their enemies and bad news of not getting the job done completely. Look in Judges chapter 1 and verses 19 through 21. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Skip down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. And down to 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Judges 1 continues with a long list of Israelite failures to take possession of the land that God had given to them. Seven times the writer pounds out the problem tribe by tribe. They did not drive out the inhabitants. The Israelites were willing to coexist with the most wicked people on the planet. They thought they knew best. That something less than full obedience would be good enough. An incomplete obedience, though we want credit for the effort, is really just disobedience. Is there some area of your life in which you have assumed that grace permits you to settle for something less than full obedience to what God has clearly commanded? I'm not talking about an area in which you continue the fight against sin. I'm asking, is there an area in your life in which you've given up the fight and settled into something less, anything less, than complete obedience? Is there wickedness in your world that you are accommodating instead of eradicating? And can you see that God always provides the needed power to obey him fully, not just halfway? Now, why is the partial obedience of the Israelites a problem? As we bring our modern-day sense of what it means to be a good citizen of the world to this story, we're tempted to think that they were actually doing right by these people, by making peace instead of war. But this was a unique place and time in which God was establishing what he intended to be his kingdom on earth in Israel. This was to be the holy land where he would dwell with his people. And God knew that what began as toleration would descend into outright capitulation to a Canaanite way of life with no regard for Yahweh. What seemed reasonable would prove lethal. Living among the Canaanites would result in living like the Canaanites. And so what did God do? 
the same God who came to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's armies came again in the person of the angel of the Lord to speak to all the people of Israel. Look with me in Judges 2, verses 1 through 4. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Here we see an example of one of the ways God judges again and again in the Bible and in our day. He gives people what they want. You want to live among these wicked people? Fine. I will let you live among these people and experience the consequences of accommodating that kind of evil in your midst. What the people needed was a hero who would save them from the incomplete obedience that threatened to trap them forever in a downward spiral. The second thing we need is a hero who will save us from our ignorance. In the second chapter of Judges, we have a second introduction to the book that starts over again with where we left off at the end of the book of Joshua. And it helps us to understand a little more about these people who have refused to drive out the Canaanites from their land. Look with me in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And skip down to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The generation who were small children when the Israelites walked away from Egypt and through the Red Sea had died. And gone too was the next generation who marched around Jericho for seven days and saw the walls fall down. And something terrible had happened as that generation died off. Something we fear happening in our own families. The previous generation had failed to pass along a living faith to their children. This new generation had heard the stories about Yahweh and his powerful deliverance and guidance and provision, but they hadn't experienced it for themselves. This generation was much like our own, born into prosperity and fascinated with the search for spiritual meaning amongst the many options presented in the colliding cultures around them. But they saw reading, loving, and obeying God's word as terribly old-fashioned and irrelevant. You know, all of us who are parents want the secret formula for passing along living faith to our children. And we're frustrated that there is no formula 
but surely our kids need more than to hear about how their parents have experienced God in the past or even in the present. Surely our children need to be involved in ongoing experiences of putting faith to the test. Yet most of us do everything we can to avoid situations in which our families are forced to depend on God as our only hope, our only supplier, our only security. But if the next generation is going to know the Lord, they have to know more than Bible stories or even correct doctrine. They have to experience what it means to trust God to deliver on his promised help. Maybe we shouldn't always be so quick to be our children's savior. Maybe we should be willing to allow our children to experience needing God to come to the rescue and discovering how he does that. With a clear vision of Yahweh's claim upon them, it was natural for this new generation to pursue Canaanite deities. So how would they ever be saved from the spiritual ignorance that relegated Yahweh to an old-fashioned religion? Only if a hero came who would reveal God to them in a personal, unmistakable way. And how are we going to pass along our faith to our children? Only as our hero works through his word, implanted in their minds throughout their lives to call them to trust him with their lives. Only as he captures their hearts, moving them from knowing about God to truly knowing God. The third thing we need in a hero is that we need a hero to save us from our idolatry. Spiritual voids simply don't stay empty, but they're filled with other things. And so it was for this generation of Israelites. Their experiential ignorance of God led to their abandonment of God and their embrace of other gods. Look back in Judges 2, verses 11 and 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. I wonder how you feel when you read this. Or if you feel anything when you read this. If we were reading through the Bible, when we came to this verse in Judges 2, we would have just read Joshua 24, that when the people were told to choose who they would serve, the whole nation of Israel said, we will serve the Lord. And then here we are two chapters later, and we read, they abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. And we would feel a great sense of sadness, a sense of this should not be. <laughs> this should cause us to feel the way we feel when we hear the sad news that a friend we witnessed taking her wedding vows has left her husband for another lover. 
I mean, when that happens, we feel sick about it. And we shake our heads wondering how what began with such love and beauty could have devolved into abandonment and alienation. This is how we should feel when we read that Israel has abandoned even a pretense of loving God. She is going all out after other gods. So who are these gods? And what did it entail for Israel to go after them? Well, Baal was the god of the land. For land deals and commerce, you needed a Baal. And Baal was also the god of fertility. So to get your crops to grow and your cows to have calves and your wives to have children, you needed to appease Baal. Or really, it was more like coerce Baal by acting out in front of Baal what you wanted Baal to do. So you went to one of the temples to Baal and had sex with a temple prostitute, saying to Baal, in effect, this is what we want you to do to give us fertility. So instead of trusting the living God to provide what they needed, the Israelites indulged themselves sexually in pursuit of what they thought they needed to make them happy. And likely they saw themselves as very enlightened people to be so open to alternative ways of being spiritual. In a recent issue of O, the Oprah magazine, a writer named Martha Sherrill wrote an article called The Spiritual Revolution, in which she described the spiritual evolution of her generation. Let me read it to you. She says, whenever I visit my cousins in California where I grew up, I'm reminded what a spiritually adventurous group we are. There are a dozen or more of us spanning the baby boomer generation. We span the spiritual landscape too having come from Christian grandparents, Catholic and various Protestant traditions, we are now all over the map. As my sister Anina says, you know me, I'll look under any rock, and there isn't a spiritual practice I won't try. While a couple of my cousins were drawn into the Book of Mormon and another joined a mainstream Protestant denomination, most of us have wandered into ancient Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Sufism. We've done visualizations and prostrations. We've counted prayers on mala beads. We've gone on compassion retreats, silent meditation retreats, and long life empowerments. We've met with tarot card readers, mediums, and a guru with his own South Pacific Island ashram. She writes, I used to feel embarrassed by our spiritual experimentation. It felt so hapless, so random. But on reflection, our explorations aren't so random after all. They're linked by a unity of purpose, a common goal, which, for lack of a better word, I'll call authenticity. We're out to find an authentic experience or tradition, a way to live more passionately profoundly, truthfully. Later in the article, Ms. Cheryl quotes Jerome Baggett, Associate Professor of Religion and Society at the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley, in regard to people who describe themselves as spiritual. He writes, they're saying, yes, I want to have a connection to the sacred. 
but I want to do it on my own terms. Terms that honor who I am as a discerning, thoughtful agent and that affirm my day-to-day -day life. God on my terms. This could serve as a definition of idolatry. In three places in the book of Judges, we read that in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they redefined God as they chose. They pursued him in ways that appealed to them. They put their own preferences about what a God worthy of worship should be like above God's revelation of himself through his word. They allowed the Canaanite culture around them to shape their spiritual search. God had made it clear that they were to drive the Canaanites completely out of the land. But it was easier to just let them be than to drive them out. And besides, they were interesting. I mean, they knew how to have fun. And over time, they became just the neighbors down the street whose kids had grown up with their kids and married each other and just didn't seem like that big of a deal. But of course, God had warned that if they did not drive the Canaanites out, the Canaanites would lure the Israelites away from their exclusive love relationship with Yahweh. Their gods would turn their heads and their hearts away from the one true God. And that's exactly what happened. The fourth thing we see about the kind of hero we need is that we need a hero who will save us from our enemies. Can you imagine a husband discovering that the wife he loves is sleeping with other men and that husband simply shrugging his shoulders and not caring? I mean, wouldn't that indicate that he really didn't love her in the first place? And throughout the Bible, God makes it clear that he loves his people with a passionate love a jealous love, and he cannot simply shrug off her rampant infidelity. He must take action, drastic action, to cause her to call out his name again. Look back in Judges 2 at verse 13. They abandon the Lord and serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to their plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now perhaps... This doesn't seem to you like the loving thing to do. But Israel belongs to a God who is so deeply committed to his beloved that he is not above inflicting misery in order to awaken her to his love. God's purposes in this are not to harm but to save, not to destroy but to preserve. 
not to drive her away, but to draw her back to himself. And he will do this again and again. Look in verse 16 of chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God raised up a series of judges to save those whom he loved. Judges who were able to save not by their natural know-how or strength, but by the strength he supernaturally provided. The middle section of the book of Judges tells the story of a dozen of these judges. Now, when we think of judges, we think of men and women in courtroom robes, enforcing laws and enacting penalties. But these judges were not so much legal authorities as they were military leaders. Think less like Judge Judy and more like Jack Bauer. They were deliverers, saviors, rescuers, raised up by God himself. And frankly, they're an interesting lot. Some of them had stellar personal character, but many of them seem wholly lacking in it. All in all, they were significantly flawed heroes. One woman and 11 men in whom we see cowardice, presumption, lust, and violence. We're used to looking for heroes in the Bible we can use as examples of character and conduct. And so we really don't know what to do with Ehud's brutal assassination and Gideon's laying out a fleece and Jephthah's rash vow to sacrifice his daughter and Samson's chasing after women. But the point of these judges is not to hold these judges up as examples of behavior. Instead, they're to be held up as trophies of God's grace. We are meant to see that God works through profoundly flawed people. Don't we see the same thing in our day? Haven't you known people who have experienced great moral failures? They have personality defects and character flaws, even great doctrinal error, and yet we have to stand back and scratch our heads and admit that God is using them to advance his kingdom in a particular territory. There's a part of us that doesn't like it. We rightly have high standards for those who lead. But can you see what good news it is that God uses profoundly flawed people for his salvation purposes? It means that he can use you and he can use me. In fact, we read about these flawed judges in the book of Hebrews. In the chapter that is all about people in the Old Testament who live by faith. Look with me in Hebrews 11 verses 32 through 34. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. When we read the stories 
of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, we don't really come away thinking of them as people of great faith. Perhaps that's because we want people noted for faith to also be paragons of consistency in their living out of that faith. Yet aren't we people who seek to live by faith and yet struggle with enormous blind spots and embarrassing moral failures, a general lack of sound judgment, a lust for sex and for acclaim, and a great fear that God will not show up in the way he has promised. The judges were far from perfect saviors, and really that is the point. A better savior was needed. The judges simply brought no lasting change. While they were able to bring about change in the circumstances of the Israelites in terms of relieving oppression, they had no power to change the hearts. In fact, under their leadership, things really only went from bad to worse. We need a hero. We need a hero to save us from our increasing corruption. In the pages of Judges, we witness the relentless regress of the people of God from the heights of victory and rest when they entered the land under Joshua to the depths of chaos at the end of the period of the Judges. Here at the beginning of the book of Judges, we're given a preview or a summary of the pattern that is going to take shape in the pages to come as we're introduced to the various judges. Look in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The same pattern repeats itself seven times in the book of Judges. The people are at rest in the land. And then they rebel against God in idolatry. And then God sends their enemies against them in judgment so that they cry out to God. And then God rescues them by sending a judge to save them. And they are at rest once again. But this isn't merely a circular pattern. It's a downward spiral. Every cycle begins with the same statement or a variant of it. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Tolerated evil is not static in our lives. It is progressive. It keeps claiming more and more territory in our attentions and affection. It keeps taking more and more away from us. Even as we are fooled into thinking, it's adding something to our lives. But even as judges makes us uncomfortably aware of the increasing corruption of God's people, it serves to magnify the abundant grace of the people's God. Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity. God keeps showing up to save people who repeatedly sabotage their own security. 
He has patience with people who refuse to learn from their mistakes. Only Yahweh loves this way. And so we must see that far more than a series of stories about flawed heroes, Judges is the story of a merciful God who is patient toward repeat offenders who are stubbornly resistant to him. God sends a Savior to people who are so caught up in their wickedness that they love their sin more than they love the one who is saving them. But he still sends the Savior. In fact, here in the Old Testament, we see the principle that Paul spelled out to the Romans when he wrote, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We need a hero. We need a hero to save us from our inadequate repentance. Repeatedly, when their increased corruption brought about the misery, it always does, the Israelites cried out to the Lord in pain. But we can't confuse this with calling out to the Lord in genuine repentance. There's a difference between becoming sadly aware of your failure and being ready to do something about it. A difference between coming under conviction and coming away from our sin. Tears are not a requirement of, nor are they a dependable sign of genuine repentance. Change is the dependable sign of real repentance. Yet God responded to the inadequate repentance of the Israelites in mercy sending them a series of short-term saviors. Not only do we need a hero, we need a king. We need a king to save us by ruling over us. It's important to know when we're reading through Judges that we are not reading a chronological story. We're getting snapshots of various judges whom God raised up over various tribes and territories, but not over the entire nation. In fact, that's really the heart of the problem, which is summed up in the final verse of the book of Judges. Look with me in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, where we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Moses and Joshua had exercised leadership over the nation as a whole, but they were gone. And Israel was now a loosely connected coalition of tribes with no national leader. There was no one at the helm to keep pointing them toward God and encouraging them to obey God's word. So God raised up the judges to deliver them and establish peace for a time. But then the judge would die leaving behind no sustained dynasty, no lasting leadership, no preserving power. What they needed was a king, a good king, who would be a man whose heart would be much like God's own heart. A king who would lead them away from idolatry, away from this downward cycle of corruption, and into true knowledge of God and heartfelt obedience to God. They needed a covenant-keeping king who was anointed by the Spirit, one who would lead in doing what was right in the Lord's eyes rather than doing what was right in their own eyes. 
A short time later, God temporarily and partially gave them just such a king when he put David on the throne over Israel. But David's sons did not follow in his footsteps, and they left God's people longing for a more perfect king. The people waited and looked for and longed for the Savior King God said he would raise up for them. And when John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, was born, his father, Zechariah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was able to see and celebrate that finally God was raising up this king they had been waiting for. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Jesus is the hero they had been holding out for, the king they had been waiting for, the king they needed. And he's the king we need. We need more than a human monarch who will watch over us in this world. We need a ruler who will rescue us from a world that is passing away. We need a king who will demand our total allegiance. Our savior, deliverer, king has come down to rescue and rule over us. Finally, we need a king to make us right in God's eyes. In that last verse of Judges that begins, in those days there was no king in Israel, we also read what happens when we have no king ruling over us and what we need our king to do for us. Because Israel had no king, we read in verse 25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They thought they knew what was right. They went with their gut instead of going with God's clear and certain word. And I wonder if along the way, if you had challenged them about their trip to the temple of Baal and their building of an Asherah pole, if they would have even spiritualized their confidence in their ability to know what was right by saying, I have a piece about it. My friend, we can never underestimate our powers of self-deception in regard to our inner desires and motives. And that is why we need something more than a sense inside ourselves. We need a word from outside of ourselves. We need the plumb line of God's clear and certain word to show us what is good and right. Just as Israel needed a godly king to lead them in doing right in the Lord's eyes, so do we. But more than just a king who will show us what is right and lead us in doing what is right in God's eyes, we need a king who is good enough and powerful enough to make us right in God's eyes. And that is what Jesus has done. Our great deliverer was handed over to die because of our sins 
and he was raised to life to make us right with God. In the end, we see that all of the inadequacies of the judges in the book of Judges serve to reveal to us the excellencies of our true Savior, Deliverer, King. Ehud was a fearless warrior who had a message for the king of Moab that was delivered in the form of a sword thrust into his belly. Jesus, too, is a fearless warrior who, Colossians tells us, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And how did he overcome the powers of darkness? Not by thrusting a sword into anyone, but by being nailed to a cross and having a sword thrust into his side. Gideon said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But it was actually Gideon's weakness that made him the perfect person to accomplish God's purpose, which was to point to the greater Savior God would send. To fight the greatest battle of all time, Jesus became weak. He became vulnerable to death. Under Gideon, God reduced the number of troops needed to accomplish a victory over his enemies to only 300 men. But eventually, he reduced his fighting force to only one man. Paul writes that God defeated his enemy and made it possible for us to live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. In the final climactic moment of Samson's life, Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple to Dagon, the Philistines' god, where he was chained and being made a spectacle of mockery. To defeat the enemies of the people of God, required the death of Samson, as the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life, we read in Judges 16. In this way, Samson foreshadowed our greater Savior, Jesus. He, too, was handed over and bound by Gentile oppressors and mocked as helpless. He, too, accomplished the deliverance of God's people by his own death. My friend, don't settle for a hero inside of you. You need a hero outside of yourself. Jesus is the only hero worth holding out for. He will deliver you from your enemies and replace your idolatrous heart with one that beats with love for him alone. He will make you right before God's eyes by covering you in his own righteousness. He will save you to the uttermost. He is a hero worth singing about. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. 
Jesus saves, Jesus saves, shout salvation full and free, highest hills and deepest caves, this our song of victory. Jesus saves, Jesus saves.